It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 316 for October 28, 2012. This week, how much do you have to pay to keep your computers free of malware? The surprise story of the week is Windows 8 arrives. In short circuits, is a surface on your shopping list yet? And where's my train? The Metropolitan Transit Authority has an app for that. So, do you have to pay a lot to keep your computer free of malware? In a word, no. Plenty of free applications exist to protect your computer, and many of them are even small enough to fit on a modest thumb drive. Granted that 64 gigabit thumb drives are now available, but you don't need one that big. Let's see what's available. Even though I'm a fan of the free version of Avast, you might also want to take a look at Clamwin, which is both free and open source. I still prefer Avast because Clamwin doesn't offer any real-time protection, and I consider that to be an important option. After all, it's easy to forget to scan a file for threats, and you have to remember to do that with Clamwin. Still, the portable version fits very easily on even a tiny thumb drive, and it can be helpful if your regular antivirus application, whichever one you choose, misses a threat. Sophos is considered to be one of the most competent tools when it comes to detecting and removing rootkits. A rootkit is designed to hide the existence of certain processes or programs from all of the normal methods of detection, and thus enable continued privileged access to a computer. Rootkits are, as you probably suspect, often malicious. When a rootkit has been installed, the intrusion can be hidden, and the process can maintain privileged access. Rootkits can modify existing software, including those applications that can be used to detect rootkits. So that's why you might want to have a rootkit detector on a handy thumb drive. An oldie, SpyBot Search and Destroy. This is an application that's been around for a long time. It's free. The portable version is particularly helpful if your computer has become infected. Another handy tool to have on a thumb drive for after-the-fact malware removal is EMISoft's Emergency Toolkit. This application knows about 6 million malware applications. Did you know that many existed? And usually knows how to remove them. If you really messed up your computer, Viper Rescue might save the day. It doesn't require a graphical user interface, so you can launch the computer in safe mode and search for the malware that's making your life miserable. No matter how careful you are, your computer might someday become infected. And when that happens, having a thumb drive or a CD that's filled with malware removal tools can convert your computer from a useless mass of muck to a workable tool. I had planned to talk about subjects other than Windows 8 this week. Really, I had. After all, I've produced a series of reports on the subject ranging from the early days when I questioned Microsoft's sanity in doing away with the Start menu, through the more recent discussions in which I decided the Start menu really isn't important, and that other features offered by Windows 8 are. 
But there were so many questions and comments this week that a final pre-release report seemed to be called for, although you won't hear it until after Windows 8 has been on the market for a day or two. In the week leading up to the launch, manufacturers were showing off new notebook computers, tablets, and hybrid computers, some of which run on Intel's Z2760 Atom processor. This is the processor with the clever alias Clovertrail. These devices could be Android killers. Some of the devices include detachable keyboards so they can serve as tablets or clamshell computers. The Atom processor will limit them to the lower end of the performance spectrum, but the primary use for computers such as these is likely to be light web browsing, news reading, email, possibly some light spreadsheet and presentation functions. In other words, nobody's going to mistake an Atom-based computer for a high-power game, photo, or video system. Where they excel is cost. They're inexpensive. Weight, they're light, and battery life. They typically promise 8 to 10 hours on a full charge, some even more. And all the usual suspects will have computers on the market. I would expect to see these on airplanes, adopted by people who travel a lot, and possibly by families who want more than just a cell phone or a tablet when they're on vacation. Here are a few examples that I noticed this week. Samsung has a Smart PC Series 5 Slate, it starts as an 11.6-inch tablet with a 1366 by 768 pixel display, but connects to a keyboard so that it converts to a clamshell computer. Samsung has worked with Wacom to include a digitizer functionality, and there are two cameras, 2-megapixel front-facing and 8-megapixel rear-facing. The tablet weighs in at slightly more than a pound and a half. Add the keyboard, and you'll double the weight to just over three and a quarter pounds. Asus has the Vivio tab, and with any amount of luck, Asus will have used its experience with Android tablets and hybrid devices to eliminate mistakes. As with the Samsung device, you start with an 11.6-inch tablet that has a 1366 by 768 pixel display. Wacom Digitizer technology is present, and you can buy a separate keyboard that makes it a clamshell. Expect about a pound and a half for the tablet, about double that when you add the keyboard. As with the Asus Android docking station, the keyboard provides USB ports. Dell has an entry in this market space coming soon. The Latitude 10 screen's just a little bit smaller, 10 inches, but resolution remains the same, 1366 by 768. The docking station includes USB ports, SD card slot, and an Ethernet port, so it looks like Dell's target market is business users. Unlike other manufacturers, Dell's offering makes it possible to swap out the battery in the docking station. That's yet another sign that Dell is going after the business market. And also, one more indicator that Dell wants business users, there's a smart card reader that provides data encryption. Then there's the Acer Iconia W510. This device has a screen that's slightly larger than Dell's, but still smaller than most competitors, 10.1 inches. And it has lower resolution, just 1280 by 800. But it's also half a pound lighter, slightly over two and three quarters pounds with the keyboard. And Acer claims 18 hours of battery life with the keyboard attached. Lenovo will have the ThinkPad 2, and here Lenovo matches the size of the Acer device, but its add-on keyboard doesn't offer any extra battery life. In fact, the keyboard could cost you some battery life because it uses a Bluetooth connection. The display is more or less standard, 1366 by 768 and the Wacom Digitizer offers some added levels of sensitivity. Hewlett-Packard is in with the Envy X2. 
HP includes the detachable keyboard and the screen is the full standard 11.6 inch size with 1366 by 768 pixel resolution. As with most of the other devices, the tablet alone is about a pound and a half. The keyboard doubles the weight. HP includes technology that improves the Envy's sound, but don't expect too much from the tiny speakers. So how big is the threat from Windows 8 to Android? I own an Android tablet, and I bought the add-on keyboard. As much as I like the portability, I haven't found a lot to rave about when considering the Asus hardware or the Asus modified Android operating system. Google has been accused of allowing manufacturers to make too many modifications to the operating system, meaning that buyers can have very different experiences depending on which manufacturer they buy an Android device from. Microsoft has allowed manufacturers to add applications to Windows, but has never permitted the kind of wholesale modifications Google has allowed. Using history as a guide, one would have to assume that the experience of using Windows 8 will be about the same whether the device is manufactured by Acer or Asus, HP or Dell, Lenovo or Samsung. If you like the touch-based Android operating system, Microsoft probably considers you to be a potential buyer of a Windows 8 device. It's true that the Windows 8 Store doesn't have anywhere near the number of apps available from either Google Play or Apple's Store. Few apps were available initially from Apple either, but the landscape has changed. Apple had the market to itself back then. Now Microsoft will be competing against stores operated by Apple and Google. Apple probably doesn't have much to worry about, at least not yet, but Google needs only to glance at the list of manufacturers who have signed on to build Windows 8 tablets and hybrid devices to realize that these are the same manufacturers who are currently making Android tablets. Samsung and Toshiba, for example, or Asus, and the list goes on. Android phones have taken a huge amount of market share from Apple, but the same can't be said for tablets. Amazon's Kindle Fire HD is an Android device, and one of the few that seems to be in demand, but that's likely because Amazon is pushing it hard, has set the price low, and is promoting the ability to view videos and other kinds of media. By this time next year, the tablet and hybrid market may well have shrunk to two primary players, Apple and Microsoft. The Kindle Fire HD is a perfect example of what Google got wrong. Amazon was allowed to almost completely obscure the underlying Android operating system. Buying a Kindle because it's an Android is kind of like buying a Fiat because it comes from the same country where Lamborghinis are manufactured. It's possible, and maybe even likely, that Android technology will be adopted by third and fourth tier manufacturer, then tablets will become stocking stuffers at Christmas time, something you can give a child to play music and games. The one thing that Android will never be able to match is the ability of devices that run Windows 8 to run applications such as Microsoft Office. Those who depend on Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Access, Visio, Project, and the rest of the suite won't find those on any Android device. And the Windows Store, which was still technically in beta as I was preparing this report, probably has at least as many tablet-based applications as Google Play. I have to qualify that statement just a bit. Play has thousands of apps, but many of them work only on a phone, or, if they work on tablets at all, work poorly. Developers go where the market is. If you write an application that yields 75 cents every time somebody downloads it, you're going to be much more interested in larger markets. By this time next year, we'll know how this all shakes out.
So what else is new here? You already know there's no start button on Windows 8. Whether or not that's a big deal to you might well depend on your ability to accept change, your recognition of the fact that the start button is no longer needed, even without the modern interface, and your realization that on a computer that doesn't have a touch-sensitive screen, Windows 8 is really just a faster and more secure version of Windows 7. Yes, I said more secure. I've talked about speed in the past, and that's good news whenever an operating system makes a computer faster, but the increased speed isn't so great that it's worthwhile upgrading just for that feature. Security might seem to be in the same general category, but it's not. Never before has Microsoft included antivirus protection that is enabled by default. An updated version of Windows Defender joins the Windows Firewall to provide protection. Windows Defender was released initially with Vista and was well-matched to Vista's less-than-optimal performance. Back then, it didn't do much. Since then, it's come a long way. Whether it's good enough to displace third-party applications is something only time will tell. Windows Defender has basic antivirus and malware protection. Basic. Even so, I plan to continue using third-party programs. In most cases, the third-party applications offer more features and more robust protections, but Microsoft has made the business decision to provide at least baseline protection by default. But that's not all. In fact, that's not even the most critical part. You've heard, perhaps, that Windows 8 boots faster than Windows 7, and while that's true, it's only part of the story. Windows 8 also boots more safely. The Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, or UEFI, UFI, finally eliminates the antique BIOS system that's been used since the 1980s. UFI has a secure boot feature that can prevent malware, rootkits for example, from running. This feature requires new hardware, so Windows 8 will still run on older systems that boot using BIOS. If you buy a new computer that carries a Microsoft certification for Windows 8, it must have the new software. Every advantage, though, has an equal and opposite disadvantage, and Secure Boot will make it much more difficult for anyone who wants to create a dual-boot computer that runs Windows and Linux. Microsoft does promise to allow users who want to create dual-boot systems to shut off the Secure Boot feature. Web browsing and downloads will be made more secure by the Windows Smart Screen filter. This is a system-wide function that works for all browsers. The first time you try to open a file you've downloaded from a network, you'll be prompted for confirmation. This affects both executable programs and Office documents, Word and Excel, for example. Because Microsoft documents can contain macros, they are considered to be executable. You won't see the warning if the program checks out when compared to a list of known safe applications. By itself, Smart Screen doesn't provide any additional protection, but it does serve as a reminder to evaluate applications before running them. And Smart Screen will replace or eliminate some of the warnings that you may have seen with Windows 7. That's good, because the warnings were so frequent there that many people simply clicked OK without thinking about it. Thanks to a German website, I was able to review and remember the sounds of some previous versions of Windows. Here's a little trip down memory lane. That's the sound that Microsoft selected for Windows 3.1, the first version of Windows that actually worked, at least some of the time. Windows 95 turned out to be the first revolutionary version of Windows, and it came with a longer and more mellow introduction.
Windows 98 was even more mellow. Windows NT had been around for a while by this point, but NT4 was the first version of the NT fork of Windows that really attracted much attention. The startup sound was an amalgam of what had come before. Windows NT5 eventually became Windows 2000, one of the most solid versions of Windows in Microsoft's history. But you've probably never heard this startup sound. It was used for beta versions only. By the time Windows 2000 shipped, the startup sound had been shortened considerably. The sound was also used by Windows ME. That's the sound some people are still hearing. It's the Windows XP startup, and this is the version of Windows that outlasted its successor, Vista. And speaking of Vista, its startup sound remained unchanged in Windows 7, and it continues, if you enable it, in Windows 8. By default, Windows 8 is silent at startup. But Windows 8 does have a unique sound that you'll hear when you've logged on to your account. How nervous are people in Redmond these days? Windows 8 is not a guaranteed slam dunk. It's got to be a scary time to be working at Microsoft. Halloween's approaching and everybody's wondering if Windows 8 will be a treat or a trick. Most people don't like change, and Windows 8 is change personified. Apple, of course, is a major threat. Many of the new Windows 8 features depend on touchscreen capabilities, and that's where Apple leads, at least with tablets. Mac notebooks might not be selling like hotcakes, but they are selling like extremely popular computers. Apple's new Mountain Lion version of OS X includes significant changes, but none so radical as those by Microsoft. Microsoft's launch budget is reported to be about $1.5 billion. And that undoubtedly includes advertising to launch the new Surface tablets, too. Prices could be a problem. The Atom-based computers appear to be targeted for the $700 price range, but that makes them expensive when compared to standard notebooks and other tablets. Apple's notebooks are even more expensive, but people who buy Apple hardware seem to be willing to pay a premium. The lower-end Windows devices that run the RT version of the operating system cost considerably less, but they are also considerably less capable than equally priced Windows 7 notebooks. Compatibility could be an issue, too. When is a Microsoft Surface not a Microsoft Surface? You'll find two versions, one that runs Windows 8 and one that runs Windows 8 RT. The RT version looks a lot like the regular version, but it won't run traditional desktop applications. You can bet that some people will buy the RT version and then try to run applications that they run on their desktop or notebook computer. I can already hear the gnashing of teeth. In Short Circuits, we continue the saga of Surface. Have you bought one? Do you plan to? Microsoft's Surface tablet is now available. It competes with Apple's iPad. It has a 10.6-inch screen with nearly indestructible Gorilla Glass 2, 
The Windows RT model starts at $500 and has 32 gigabytes of storage. Add a cover for $100 more, increase the storage to 64 gigabytes for another $100. Well, you're now at $700. This is Microsoft's first foray into the hardware market. Now, Microsoft will tell you that they've been making hardware for 147 years. At least that's what their PR department will tell you. Maybe not quite that long. This reminds me of IBM's statement in the early 1980s. Oh, IBM's been in the personal computer market for years. <laughs> While Microsoft has made mice and keyboards, the Surface is not a mouse, it's not a keyboard, it's a computer. This is Microsoft's first foray into the computer market. Microsoft apparently wants to be a serious player in the hardware space, and specifically in the tablet space. Pre-orders for those low-end RT Surface tablets have been robust, and the tablets almost immediately went on back order. Does Microsoft have an iPad killer? Well, probably not, but it could put a bit of a dent in Apple's sales. Reports say that resellers are panning Windows 8. I've heard that a lot. But those of us who have actually used the operating system generally seem to think that it offers features users have wanted for years. The iPad is still the best-selling tablet, and hundreds of thousands of applications are available for it. As appealing as the Microsoft tablet is, it doesn't have a lot of apps at the moment. Of course, when the iPad was launched, it didn't have a lot of apps either, and at $500 to $700, the Surface looks like it could be a good value. There will be, as I've mentioned, two versions of Surface tablets, those that run Windows 8 and those that run faux Windows 8. Windows RT is the faux version. Windows 8 RT runs on ARM-based chips, and that means it won't run applications that are intended for the Intel AMD x86 architecture. If people buy an RT-based tablet expecting it to run their standard desktop and notebook applications, they're going to be surprised and disappointed. But if you need a tablet computer for the things that tablet computers are really good at, the Surface could be just what you're looking for. I mean, do you really run Access, Word, or Excel on your tablet? If you're not an Apple fanboy or fangirl and you want an alternative to the iPad, the Surface might be just what you're looking for. If your primary tablet uses are surfing the web and dealing with email, it could be a winner. It's a fact that New York City subway trains are sometimes delayed, and riders waiting in stations are at a loss for information. Sometimes there's an announcement from the MTA Command Center in Brooklyn, but the public address system is old and the stations are echoey, so something better is needed. In 2007, the MTA started installing what are called countdown clocks in stations. Eventually, the clocks will be in 153 stations. These clocks have proved to be popular because they show which trains are expected in the station and when. Arrival data will be available on the MTA website, and the MTA will make the data stream available publicly. That second part is the interesting part to me. The MTA says that developers will be able to use the data to create applications that provide information to riders in ways the MTA might not think of. The information could be particularly useful during the overnight hours when trains run far less frequently than during the day. 
Most of the numbered lines, 1, 2, 3, and 4, for example, already have countdown clocks because those lines benefited from a massive project that upgraded signal and communications systems. The MTA can now see the exact location of every train on these lines and use that data to provide arrival information to the clocks in the stations. The MTA calls these lines the A Division. On the lettered lines, such as A, B, L, R, the rest of the alphabet soup, and the 7 line, the train's exact location isn't known. Instead, locations are indicated by referencing the closest dispatch tower. These lines are the B Division. The B Division is considerably larger than the A Division. They're still working on it. Some apps actually already exist. The MTA challenged developers to create apps that people would find useful and offered $5,000 in prize money for the best app. The MTA would like me to note that no public money was used for those prizes. Incidentally, October 27th was the 108th anniversary of the opening of New York City's subway. The original Interborough Rapid Transit Line connected City Hall with Harlem. It ran under Park Avenue South to Grand Central across 42nd Street to Times Square and then up Broadway to 145th Street. Two decades after the IRT began operations, it was joined by the Brooklyn-Manhattan Transit, which formerly operated just in Brooklyn as the Brooklyn Rapid Transit System. And in September 1932, the city-owned independent subway began operations. In 1940, the IRT and BMT joined the IND under city ownership to create the unified system that runs under, and sometimes above, New York City today. I apologize. This was supposed to be just a short account of how new technology will help New York City transit users. But when I start talking about the MTA, I find it really hard to stop. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.